Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Carissa Mitchie. And we're so glad you can join us. Earlier this week on May 15th and 16th, the United States and European Union hosted the second Trade and Technology Council meeting in France. Uh, The TTC started out as an actor agnostic uh, body with a democracy versus autocracy framing, although I think it's pretty clear that the U.S. has wanted to use it to rally the transatlantic community on China-related issues. Um, But at this round of the TTC, it wasn't China that dominated the subtext, but Russia. Uh, The TTC has been a key venue for fostering U.S.-EU coordination on the export controls that have been directed against Russia. And in many ways, it really has been a proof of concept for the TTC demonstrating how the body can also be used for ad hoc coordination. Uh, In addition to fostering coordination on Russia, the joint statement from this meeting highlights shared initiatives the working groups have been advancing in the past months and plan to work on moving forward, uh, including semiconductor shortage, early warning system, a US-EU strategic standardization information mechanism, and the development of an artificial intelligence subgroup in the TTC. So lots of ground to cover. And to discuss all of this, we're really happy to welcome back to the podcast, uh, Tyson Barker and Fran Burwell. Welcome back both. Glad to be here. Um, Quick bios for both. Uh, Tyson Barker is the head of the Technology and Global Affairs um, Institute at the German Council on Foreign Relations, or DGAP. He previously worked at Aspen, Germany, where as deputy executive director and fellow, he was responsible for the Institute's digital and transatlantic programs. And Fran is a distinguished fellow at the Atlantic Council and a senior director at McClarity Associates. And her work focuses on the European Union and US-EU relations, as well as a range of transatlantic economic, political and defense issues. Okay, for those of us who have not been following the TTC closely, Fran, give us the Cliff Notes version, kind of what happened, what what jumped out to you? Well, I think the first thing that happened and that is important is that as a result of this meeting, the TTC seems to be very much established as the mechanism for discussions between the United States and the EU, the two leading economic powers in the world on trade and technology issues. And I would particularly underscore technology issues. This is not a TTIP, this is the trade effort, the effort to negotiate a trade agreement a few years ago. This is about standards. This is about uh, mapping various technologies and their impacts. This is really about getting down in the weeds um, on these discussions in a way that will help the US and the EU find a common basis for then reaching out internationally um, and confronting some of the challenges that we face vis-a-vis non-market economies such as China. But I would also point to this meeting demonstrating that the TTC can adapt to new situations. So when you have a mechanism like this that's really kind of aimed at nitty gritty stuff, One of the issues is always, if the world changes, can this mechanism change with it? And I think this has very much proven, the TTC has very much proven that it can do that. Russia was a constant presence at the meeting and in the working groups going up to the meeting. um, There is also 
There are also some newer agenda items about helping Ukraine. In other words, uh, reducing some of the trade barriers that Ukraine has faced in dealing with the United States and the EU. And we actually saw, I think a few days before this meeting, the United States lift the steel related tariffs it had on, on Ukraine. So, I mean, this is leading to real action. Uh, one can certainly criticize the TTC and the 10 working groups that are ensconced and their 48 page joint statement with annexes, lengthy annexes from each working group uh, for really only doing kind of the basics of agreeing on information exchanges, agreeing to explore further opportunities, things like this. This type of language comes in throughout the annexes there. But I think this is really laying the table for uh, future cooperation and future projects. And I think that that's what we will see in the next six months. So what my earlier hesitation about the TTC, because we've seen a lot of US-EU dialogues just kind of fizzle out, they've set up a structure that at least until 2024, I think it's there. And it's gonna be you know, a major thing that we do every six months with the working groups meeting all the time um in between but now the challenge is what are the deliverables going to be can we get in the next six months beyond the setting the table point which i think was a realist that was realistic for this meeting so i would consider this meeting a very good success but we have to keep going and tyson what do you want to add there well, that was a great uh, layout of the of the framework. Essentially, what happened. Um, I would say just a couple of quick points. One is, it's it's we can't understate the qualitative difference between the Biden administration and every other administration that has, that has become beforehand, in the importance that it lays on the relationship with the EU. Uh, that includes both Democratic and Republican administrations. These 10 working groups that Fran mentioned are extremely labor intensive. These uh, you know, working level, mid-level people in different departments across all governments, across the government in the United States and the commission in, in Brussels are speaking weekly. Um, so both sides have expended a lot of political capital and resources to make this thing work. And I will say that there was another TTC launched, uh, the European Union, maybe we'll get into this a little more deeply, with India. That relationship is just not as mature as the relationship with the United States and Europe. That is a, the US-European relationship is a systemic partnership. Um, as far as the, let's say, deliverables or outcomes from this first, or the second TTC, the first one in Europe, I just name a couple things. One is the issue of a supply chain mapping on semiconductors. Both sides are, uh, uh, let's say, on the tipping point of passing uh, CHIPS acts to try to build in resilience and supply chains across the product cycle on semiconductors uh, from lab to fab. Um, and they have worked together to provide proprietary information from uh, semiconductor producers in, in equipment, in raw materials, every level, so that they can identify weaknesses early in the process. And they are deepening that cooperation now by saying, okay, we want to make sure that we're not duplicating our state aid packages through our two uh, CHIPS Acts, which are about the same amount of, of capital on both sides of the Atlantic, about $52 billion. Uh, dollars. 
Um, there was a lot of talk in Saclay about how do we create transatlantic consortia around research and development, around chip design. Um, people were mentioning the idea of a, a transatlantic Euro-Atlantic commons for things like chip design. We could think of something like the a joint acquisition of ARM, for example. That's getting a little bit in the weeds, but they're they're deepening that kind of strategic interdependence on on semiconductors, which I think is really important. Um, the second thing that I would mention is the issue of kind of obviously we talked about the inflection of of Russia's war on Ukraine changing everything. One thing that this TTC process did was compress the time it took to latch up on implementation of what is called the foreign direct product rule on the entire country of Russia. So the ability to uh, starve Russia of this foundational technology semiconductors, which is used to power everything from you know, civil aviation to refrigerators, is a direct result of you know, the ability of the two sides to know who to call and how to, how to negotiate something quickly. And what could have taken weeks or even months literally took probably about 10 days. So that's a huge success story. The war in Ukraine is just having shock effects in every aspect of the technology relationship in both the US and Europe. I'll give you one example, uh, very uh, present in the semiconductor space on supply chains. 50% of uh, your, the neon that is used in the process to create semiconductors uh, in Europe comes from the very steel plants in Mariupol that have been under siege. So that entire supply, which is a byproduct of the steel making process has been cut off. And this is an essential uh, component in the semiconductor production process. And we're seeing this across the board. A lot of Europe's attempt to build to diversify, to emancipate itself from China and Russia on raw materials was dependent on Ukraine for lithium and other uh, critical materials. So that has obviously been impacted by this war. So both sides are looking to build resilience. And I think that the TTC is gonna be a place to do it. Now, as Fran said, last point for me, uh, they're really looking for moving between information sharing and this kind of asymptotic stuff to concrete deliverables. And I think that the pressure is on to deliver those concrete deliverables in the next TTC. And, and I'm, before I turn it over to Carissa, who this is her area of expertise, so I'll let her drive and ask the intelligent questions. But I guess the thing just from an outside or a more distant perspective on this is this kind of remarkable shift with which the TT suite, TTC seems to have swung from a focus on competing with China to this effort to really kind of close ranks and shut Russia out of the global economy. Um, I don't know, obviously, and Tyson, you said, you know, the war has reverberated and it's having all these ripple effects, but do you see uh, the TTC getting back to focusing on these like longer term challenges on China? Was this a little blip in the kind of larger trajectory of the council? And as soon as things, whenever that is uh, settled down on the Russia front, that this will, that they'll get back to kind of talking about the issues that we had expected after the first uh, session of this? So I think that actually this particular meeting did a very good job of blending the two, uh, walking and chewing gum at the same time, if you will. Uh, there is quite a lot in here uh, that is clearly aimed at China. Uh, but as with the first 
um, the Pittsburgh meeting in September, China isn't named so much. So this is very typical. The US wants to name, the EU does not, but the EU is still putting in place and agreed to take steps against certain behaviors. So there's a very interesting bit in there, a proposal to develop an initiative uh, on forced labor. Both the US and the EU are currently, currently have um, legislative proposals that would affect how they deal with forced labor and supply chains. And both of them are clearly aiming this at China, uh, although the EU not exclusively. And the idea behind this is that if we come to an agreement on how to address this, we can then take it to the ILO, the International Labor Organization. So in some of these things, you do very definitely see a desire to come to some kind of bilateral US-EU arrangement or understanding, and then to use it this, uh, globally. The standards uh, mechanism that was established and that has been lead, the lead headline, if you will, of the very specific um, deliverables is clearly aimed at eroding China's uh, emerging domination of international standard setting bodies. It's about the US and the EU talking to each other before they go to those bodies, thinking about how to coordinate so that they can return to, they can enjoy the um, influence in those organizations that the two largest market economies in the world should enjoy. Um, whether this is a, a blip, this focus on Russia, I doubt it um, because we are now obviously settling into a longer term conflict. Um, we don't know how much longer, but actually this mechanism, if you add a couple more um, agencies from both, uh, the US and the EU to specific working groups. And this is actually the genius of the working group structure is you can do that. I can see this playing a major role in the rebuilding of Ukraine. I mean, so, and in coordinating what we're doing. Obviously we will have our own programs, the EU will have their own programs. But I think the question for the next six months is let's assume that there still remains a heavy focus on Russia. Let's assume that there still is a heavy focus or an attempt to focus on other non-market economies like China, right? Um, the question is how much of that will result in actual projects? How, and one concern that I have is that if you move away from the, the bread and butter issues of uh, the TTC, and you just make it too geopolitical and declarations rather than the heavy duty working group stuff, that the corporate stakeholders, that many of the stakeholders will not be as supportive as they have been so far. So I think that's, that's something that they're getting that balance right is gonna be key for the next six months. Just a quick follow, oh, Tyson, go ahead and then a quick follow on on that. Yeah, I, I just wanted to add uh, two quick points. Uh, one is I think we, that as it, it's tragic, the, the war in, that Russia has declared on Ukraine, it's brutal, but it has been uh, useful for uh, accelerating yeah. uh, this entire exercise. I think that both sides are well well served by this dry run where there's a lot of alignment. 
in position before moving on to China. So addressing the acute challenge of Russia's war in Ukraine has primed both sides better for the chronic challenges of both digital authoritarianism as most represented by China on the one hand, and also climate change on the other hand. And I think that that's where we're gonna see if this, if this does, we're past the proof of concept point, but as this becomes a durable uh, process, that those are gonna be the two areas that are going to be the most important in it. Um, two areas that I think that they also addressed in this particular TTC, and I think have gone a little bit unnoticed, have both to do with the global South. Um, and I, you know, on both sides of the Atlantic, there's a real awareness that uh, the global South is one of the key, let's say, fronts in establishing democratic tech governance. On the ICTS, the ICT security front, uh, both the US and Europe are planning on pouring hundreds of billions into uh, development finance for connectivity infrastructure in 5G, in undersea cables, in data centers, and smart cities. And both sides came together to say, we need to have common principles similar to, sorry, this is getting a little nerdy, but similar to the, um, the EU's uh, toolbox, cybersecurity toolbox for 5G, or similar to the process around the Clean Network Initiative from a couple of years ago, or Blue Dot, um, that basically say that if equipment is compromised or could be compromised or creates lock-in effects, that it would not be considered for eligible financing by the US or European Union. And I think that is a big uh, step forward. Uh, what we need to see now, of course, are, are concrete projects. The second area is, is disinformation. Um, you know, we sit in the US and Europe and we think that Ukraine is winning the disinformation war. Uh, the ultimate influencer right now, of course, is Vladimir Zelensky. Uh, he's winning hearts and minds on both sides of the Atlantic. But that's not necessarily the case in the global south where uh, narratives around neocolonialism, around NATO expansion, around uh, inflation related to food costs are actually uh, gaining traction. And even though, and they are being pushed by Russia, but they are being given a lot of cover and support by China. Um, so even though China is complying with sanctions, um, it is not playing that, it's playing a much more nefarious and active role in the global South. So there's a, a, an awareness that there's a need to address the issue of disinformation and platform governance around it. It didn't get as far as I think we would have hoped in the Saclay uh, TTC, but I think we can expect to see something more concrete uh, in the next one. Yeah, I have um, an interesting anecdote I heard from a senior U.S. official as, I mean, they're recognizing, right, that um, although the transatlantic community has been extremely cohesive, there's been a strong response that that's not the case um, in Latin America, Africa, parts of the Middle East. And um, this person recounted a meeting with senior South African officials um, where they were trying to go to build their case about, you know, you need to push back. And the first kind of line of questioning that came from these senior South African officials is, well, tell us about those chemical uh, weapons facilities that you had in Ukraine. So that disinformation has permeated at the societal level, but also senior government officials. And as you said, it's Russia, but I mean, it's the synergy between Russia and China. My follow on question is exactly um, uh, follows from that on the China front is like, to what extent do you think that um, China will be seen increasingly in Europe as guilty by association? And the fact that, you know, yes, they're not going to go so far as to support Russia on the sanctions evasion front. 
But do you think that there will be a recognition kind of, Tyson, you talked about this as a catalyst for progress in the TTC. Is there any hope that kind of given the kind of aggression that has come from a revisionist authoritarian actor in Russia, that this is going to push Europeans further along in the context of the TTC to be to want to be more forward leaning and not repeat some of the mistakes maybe that have been made with Russia in the context of China? I mean, I, I can speak specifically from Berlin, where I sit, that the kind of doctrine of the past called Wandel durch Handel, or change through um, essentially commerce, um, has been basically uh, discredited. And that has been primarily along the energy access with, with Russia, um, but it also continues to the commerce access with, with China. Um, and so it has come under much more intense strain than in the past, which might lead to more hawkishness. Of course, in, in Germany, you have the Greens in power that are much more strident in thinking that there is a need to disentangle from commercial relationships in China that could ultimately compromise uh, Germany's ability to act, uh, you know, principally on, on the global stage. But in, in Brussels, they ha have to walk a very tight line because they're really trying to forge consensus among 27 member states. And even though Germany is, is in some ways a center of gravity in that process, that is a, a huge spectrum. <laughs> As we're seeing just around, you know, conversations around, uh, you know, oil uh, uh, sanctions, oil sanctions with regard to, uh, with Russia and, and Hungary's stance on that. So, I think they're going to have a little more difficulty, but you know the subtext is there, and everybody recognizes it. Uh, one more point I want to add on the on the global south, which is somewhat worrying. The TTC is is a part, even though it's the central uh, body, it's it's actually part of a longer discourse that's been taking place over the past six weeks. That started, of course, with Biden and von der Leyen's announcement of a, a an agreement in principle for a post privacy shield. Uh, transatlantic data privacy framework, um, but was followed on on April 28th by the Declaration for the Future of the Internet, which was a project of the Biden administration launched in the context of the Summit for Democracy um, that gathered 60 signatures of 60 countries to support a free, open, pluralistic global internet. Um, great that they had 60 signatures, including, I should add, Ukraine and Taiwan's digital ministers were both there, interesting symbolism, but missed all of the systemic actors that are important from the global south. India, South Africa, Brazil, none of them were there, even Mexico and South Korea didn't sign. So there are still, there's still a lot of work to be done to kind of forge that coalition of like-minded states, as we like to say, uh, for this kind of approach, because um, the US and Europe are necessary, but clearly not sufficient. So I want to go back to your question about Russia and China. And I would disaggregate them, because I think they're very differently perceived in Europe, uh, the situations. So the invasion by Russia of Ukraine is a, a true shock to the European system. Um, it is something that reverses the story uh, of Europe for the last 80 years. And as such, it, there's, I find a very visceral reaction in response to Russia. 
a page has been turned. And unless there is a peace deal that the Ukrainians fully support, which we don't see, um, there will be no going back uh, for the corporate world in terms of its engagement with Russia for the foreseeable future. I've been enormously impressed with how quickly the new German government has uh, outlined targets for getting off gas in particular and has been trying to shorten that horizon. Um, it's going to be a very tough road for them, but they are being aggressive in trying to do that. China is different. Uh, first off, Europe is not thinking of China in a military sense. They don't think about the inv a potential invasion of Taiwan or anything like that. Um, and I would actually say that in terms of uh, what Tyson mentioned before, the network, um, the toolbox for 5G network security, um, there are a number of things that the EU has done that doesn't say China, but that specifies what a trusted vendor would be. And it's clear that any major Chinese company does not meet that criteria to be a trusted vendor. Um, similarly, they are now uh, considering a due diligence framework, which would uh, set out a series of criteria, including forced labor and other elements that China could be uh, that could describe China and asking companies to specify where in their supply chains uh, they run into these issues. It will have an enormous effect on uh, the exports, China, uh, on European participation or use of China in their supply chains, including for non-sensitive consumer goods because the European consumer will be more able to pick and choose based on let's say non-commercial, non-price factors. So I think, uh, and then we also have the, the proposal for a CBAM, the Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism. That's something that may cause a lot of headaches for us in the United States. But one of the things the TTC is starting to do is to figure out how do we, how do we count, how do we measure uh, in a way so that, so that both the US and the EU are, talking about the same levels of decarbonization when they're talking, when CBAM is applied. China's not part of that conversation. Chinese goods, Chinese uh, imports into Europe are going to be very much affected by this kind of thing. So I, I think that in making the case to Europe about China, the, the landscape has changed. China came in, particularly Central Europe, uh, 10, 15 years ago, and really started trying to invest and trying to get contracts. They got contracts, but they didn't always fulfill them to European standards. Uh, they made a lot of promises that didn't come through. Um, I think there are some companies, and there certainly are some ports that Europe would like to recover from Chinese investment. Um, but when it happened, there were no other takers. So, you know, um, but I, I think that now they are focused on what are the activities that China and its representative companies are engaged in that
that we don't like, that we find are not consistent with the values of our market? And how do we restrain those behaviors as opposed to saying it's China, we don't want it. So I think that's a different approach from the United States, but I think it is one that fits the way Europe does business um, and regulates. And it's one that in the TTC has been a delicate dance, but I think has proven quite, it's, it's proving effective. I wanna pull a little bit on this global south thread. Um, so as the TTC is charting a more global agenda, it seems that it might necessitate bringing in some third countries, whether it's into, you know, specific working group conversations. You know, this conversation has also shown in some ways that the United States and Europe are maybe not the best messengers um, for some emerging markets. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about kind of how you envision maybe third countries being involved in certain working groups, if you think that's one wise, two kind of which working groups that would be, if you think there should be any kind of linkage between the India um, EU TTC that was mentioned earlier, and then kind of on the topic of third countries, what about the United Kingdom? You know, how um, do they factor into all of this as well? So Tyson, um, over to you first, since I know you were just writing a lot on the global south. I mean, so there have been similar conversations. That is a sign of success, is when other uh, third countries say, "Oh, what is this process taking place? How do we how do we get involved? How do we plug in?" Um, the idea of having you know some ad hoc docking mechanisms might be possible midterm, but I think at its core, this needs to remain a U.S. European uh, EU dialogue. Um, there are a lot of actors that want to participate. Uh, elected officials want to participate, particularly in Europe. Uh, member states want to participate. And, you know, there is a direct trade-off between inclusiveness and some of the effectiveness and cohesion of the kind of discussions that can take place. So I think that there is a role and ways to plug in through the G7, uh, through EU-NATO conversations, particularly around what I call democratic autonomy or the you know, how tech access and control should take place on export controls, FBI screening, uh, trustworthy vendors and research protection. Um, obviously, uh, the US has uh, dialogues that are taking place through the Quad and the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. Europe now are, has this TTC with India. But I think we should think of it as almost a kind of alliance ecosystem where they're all kind of participating in a, a collaborative discourse rather than saying, how do we open up this particular process to third countries? I would just add that in my conversations uh, with European officials and US officials, I find no evidence that they're interested in bringing in third parties into the TTC structure. Um, they are, however, very much making the making clear that they are briefing others of the like-minded. So the US, I mean, the EU-Japan summit was the Thursday before the TTC meeting. I'm sure that President von der Leyen did a summary of what was going to be in the TTC. Um, there clearly is in the TTC an ambition in certain working groups to create mechanisms and projects and dialogues that they can then share with others. And it may be that we will see things come out of the TTC that then others are able to latch onto, but not as part, not inclusion of others into the working groups themselves. Working groups, I heard one EU official describe them, describe the TTC as incubators. 
so they can incubate ideas and then it moves out um, and perhaps latches on to what others latch on at that point. Uh, clearly, there is a desire to multilateralize the results of the TTC. Um, on the subject of the UK, I would say that, of course, UK-EU relations continue to be rather shaky. Um, and uh, I think they are probably likely to become even shakier because it's clear that this discussion about British legislation that would re effectively redraft Northern Ireland Protocol seems like it's going to go on for a while. Uh, we know also that the UK is now looking at its different regulations that it inherited you know, as an EU member. Um, so for example, GDPR, and it wants to reform GDPR, uh, reform GDPR, um, what that will mean in terms of how the EU will view that and the adequacy agreement that the EU has given them for data transfers, I don't know. Um, so I think that right now, uh, the only topics on which the EU, the US, and the UK seem to be closely collaborating is providing weapons to Ukraine. <laughs> so uh, I think that's, you know, it's really, and within the NATO framework. So I'm, I'm not even, I think that including the UK in this, it makes some rational sense, but it's going to have to wait until there's a turning of the political page, let's put it that way. I want to pick up on something that's a little bit tangential to the TTC, but very much a big factor in the transatlantic technology policy relationship. So since between the inaugural TTC meeting and the second one, there's been a lot of movement on, in particular, antitrust competition policy, Digital Markets Act, Digital Services Act on the content moderation side, and then, of course, also this um, new privacy framework that we've alluded to a couple of times in this conversation. Um, you know, it seems that there has been an attempt at a firewall between these issues and the TTC. Um, I'd love to hear a little more just really at first um, kind of walk us through what some of these big pieces of legislation are on the European side, what they mean for transatlantic cooperation, and then, you know, how you envision them being handled or not um, in the TTC moving forward. Should I uh, take it up? Well, I'll, I'll just say some very, very brief comments on, on uh, DSA, DMA, and, and the privacy framework. Uh, DSA uh, is, of course, a, a new rule for transparency, accountability, uh, and oversight on uh, online platforms and the way they govern content, um, the way they target advertising, the way they manage data, and how algorithms work. Um, and I will say, since it's passed, there has been a lot of admiration from the United States. You see uh, President Obama's speech at Stanford where he praised it for its uh, as a for good first step. You see Hillary Clinton tweeting about it, tweeting praise. You see a lot of uh, conversations in Congress saying maybe this is something that we should watch. And actually behind closed doors in places like the White House and among regulators, you hear 
thinking, oh, this is interesting. There are definitely pieces here we need to take up. I would even say there's something similar happening with the Digital Markets Act, which is, of course, deals with the market power of online platforms primarily. Um, there was some initial and continues to be criticism of how it defines a market power because it is seen by some as discriminatory because those who would be caught in the net are all Americans right now. I think maybe maybe ByteDance would get caught in the net, but um, primarily it's, it's American companies. But, you know, there's no monolithic view in Washington on this, including in the Biden administration. Uh, you have some people who uh, are actually quite ad ad admiring of DMA uh, in the White House, in USTR, in the FTC, for example, and you have what they sometimes call those progressives, sometimes called derisively the the 2015ers. They think that they have the mentality, the tech mentality of, of 2015, who think that you know sometimes the administration can be too accommodating of big tech. So again, plurality of views. With regard to the uh, the data protection framework, I heard somebody, a senior uh, uh, Biden official say, if it hadn't been for this breakthrough, this TTC meeting wouldn't has, have been the success that it was. And I think that that is actually true, that even though this process is adjacent to the TTC, uh, it is a necessary prerequisite for the TTC success. Um, it's going to come there are a lot of steps to come with that protection, the, this framework, a lot, maybe Fran wants to talk about all the sequencing, um, but uh, that durability of that data bridge is, is key. And just to give you some idea of the volume, uh, the undersea cables between the United States and Europe have 55% more volume than uh, undersea cables in data than uh, cables between the US and East Asia. So this is the largest data artery uh, in the world. And so keeping it open is really of strategic importance. I'd just make a couple of points regarding the relationship between these um, issues and the TTC. So from the beginning, uh, I think the Biden administration kind of came into office. And as Tyson said, they are the most the administration most focused on the EU that we have ever seen. And I think they came in with a list of conflicts, including things like steel and uh, tax, digital services tax. And they kind of went through the checklist and decided how they were going to knock each one off the agenda and get it resolved. Or if not resolved, then like Airbus Boeing, put it away for five years and, and talk about it. So. Um, so the TTC, by the time the administration accepted the European proposal for the TTC, they'd already established this pattern of addressing things elsewhere. They also wanted something that would look forward as opposed to get focused and wound up on specific disputes. You really don't want to put an executive vice president of the commission and the secretary of state and the secretary of commerce in a room and have them just talk about disputes. You want them to have more of a political positive forward motion. That said, I have no doubt that the scheduling of the TTC has sometimes acted as an action forcing event on some of these. Um, I think also it's quite clear that certain packages like DSA, DMA, particularly in Pittsburgh, there was a robust discussion of these when perspectives were put on the table and uh, the different perspectives were discussed without the expectation 
that they would be turned over to a working group of the TTC, but instead that each party, as has been said in all the documents, retains sovereignty over its regulatory process and legislative process. So, I mean, I think this is, it's a channel of communication as well at a high level, as well as the working groups. Another interesting thing is that we now have DSA and DMA implementation. And we will also have implementation of the AI Act, the European AI Act eventually, and the Data Act. And the working groups are actually talking about these types of the, the elements that you need in terms of implementation. How should algorithms be access, accessible to researchers who can tell what the actual impact of that algorithm is? And that's something that's key for both DSA, DMA, as well as other legislation going on in the EU. Um, one working group group is trying to identify how you actually define trustworthy AI. How do you measure it? And how do you measure risk in AI? And those are concepts that are central to the EU's AI Act, as well as to our NIST's risk management framework for, for AI. So in terms of the implementation of these things and trying to implement them in a way that has, um, that doesn't create unnecessary obstacles across the Atlantic, I think the TTC will be very important. Excellent. To close us out, I'd love to hear what should we be looking for in the next couple of months for the TTC as we look to that you know, third meeting at the end of 2022, how optimistic are you both feeling about the United States and Europe's ability to execute on some of these policy priorities they set in this meeting? So I'll just say that I think the next measure of success is that we need to step up and come up with some projects. Not every working group will come up with a project, but I think we need to see some that are together, whether it is an initiative that then goes to the WTO. For example, how do you define state subsidies on semiconductors and when are they too big? <laughs> you know, can we agree on how these things work? And then that we have to multilateralize that can we come up with something like a definition of trustworthy AI that we both can operationalize in, in legislation and regulation? Um, what, and I think a big factor is going to be what happens in Ukraine. And, you know, I expect the TTC to continue working as it has, but I would also hope that it does play a big role in helping to coordinate the rebuilding of of the Ukrainian economy and in thinking about how we can do that um, in a way that secures Ukraine's future. So I think there needs to be some, some elements, some projects that we can really point to at the public level, not the technocratic nerdy level <laughs> like Tyson and me, and uh, um, that can catch a little bit of profile. And then I think we'll have a really successful undertaking. Yeah, I would just add a couple quick points to that. I mean, one is this uh, data protection framework, the, how the White House uh, issues rules, how the Department of Justice promulgates this new uh, appellant body, uh, this independent uh, 
adjudicative body um, and how that gets worked into an agreement that's durable is going to really be determinative of how, what the TTC is focused on next time, because I think if that is a, an obstacle, it'll make it much more difficult. I think both sides are interested in, in big ideas. How do we ignite the imagination and create something concrete? And just to throw out a couple, one is a kind of, what about a democratic connectivity agenda? That we say that connectivity, which we've seen in Ukraine is so effective um, and, and important for the survival of that country, uh, should be considered a universal fundamental right, and that the United States and Europe are going to support it through funding of virtual private networks, through funding of uh, tools for encrypted communication, through funding for uh, you know um, internet connectivity in you know satellite connectivity, etc. Working with telcos, not only in uh, conflict zones, but perhaps even offering that to uh, citizens in authoritarian states. That's one idea. Another idea is to think about, you know, what about a global critical minerals reserve that starts with a U.S. European core? We're in a moment of shortage, so you don't want to go pro-cyclical um, and start to, <laughs> to build a reserve in a moment where we don't have enough, but to start to think midterm about how do we prepare for those rainy days in the future, particularly around rare earths. Um, so I think that there are a lot of ideas out there. Uh, you know, greater work together on, on market access for trustworthy vendors. We've talked a lot about 5G. We haven't talked enough about smart cities, about cargo screening, about smart ports, um, about, uh, you know, biometric screening, even perhaps uh, getting in more granular, granular technologies. So I think that there's a lot to do there. Um, but the, the first, the, the master key to unlocking it all will be partially this uh, data protection framework. And of course, as Fran mentioned, the situation in Ukraine is going to be first and foremost in everybody's mind. This has been so wonderful. Um, you know, obviously I went at Brussels sprouts, we've been all Russia all the time, but I'm glad that we um, took some time and obviously there's overlap here, but to get some, have a little bit of time to focus on the trade and technology council meeting, it's clearly important as you both have underscored, it really is kind of a nexus and a hub of greater transatlantic coordination. Um, so thank you for helping us all understand the significance of the meeting where it's headed. This has been really helpful. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts brought to you by the transatlantic security team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels Sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.